Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite players and personalities from Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, James Sue. To support Humans of Magic, please visit patreon.com slash jamessue. That's J-A-M-E-S-H-S-U. My guest today is the wonderful and talented Jonathan Sukenik. Jonathan is a gold-level pro and self-described multiple Magic Online PTQ winner. You can find him on Magic Online under the name WatchWolf92. There are three reasons why I chose to interview Jonathan. One, he's the nicest Magic player you'll ever meet. When you sit down across from him, Jonathan goes out of his way to ensure that you have a great time playing Magic. This is definitely not natural for me, and I wanted to get deep into his mind to understand why he does this. Second, Jonathan genuinely cares more about his friends than himself. He is the founder of the Sukenic School of Crushing, a magic team that is unlike any other. And I'm not just talking about the silly title. It's a true brotherhood of friends who will do anything for each other. The fact that Jonathan spends more time talking about his friends than himself in his interview says a lot about his selfless attitude. Third, Jonathan's got a ton of stories. You'll laugh, cry, and be in disbelief at some of the things that he and his friends have experienced. It's fun. By the way, this is going to be the last Humans of Magic episode for the year. We're headed into the holiday season, and things are not slowing down at all with my startup company, Cardboard Live. We're powering through the holidays, and it's going to require a lot of my attention. I'm hoping that things slow down by the new year. But for now, business is good, and I'm loving it. On the actual Magic playing side, I'm helping to organize a prestigious legacy tournament in Beijing, China next month. The event will be a two-day affair on December 15 and 16. The tournament will be attended by some really strong legacy players, including Julian Knob, Wilson Hunter, and Sean Brown. I will drop more information about the event in the show notes. Alright, that's enough rambling. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Jonathan Sukenik. Today on Humans of Magic, I have someone who I've known for a while and is one of the best magic players around and also just all around good guys. So Jonathan Sukenik, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've talked to a lot of people in the magic community and there's almost universally nothing that people have said about you in a bad way. You're just a good guy for magic so you have a you have a very solid reputation is what i'm trying to say yeah that's a uh, really flattering thanks to all those people i i guess i need to just walk up to random people now and start thanking them because they're, they're doing the same for me but <laughs> we met for the first time in gp richmond which was a few months ago and you were gracious enough to teach me the alternate form of magic you want to just tell people what that is yeah, so the the basic land game, uh, AJ brought it to our friend group. This is AJ Kerrigan, right? 
Yeah, AJ Kerrigan, who was previously on a, a Humans of Magic podcast. Pretty much what happens is uh, th- there's a lot of different variants. If you look it up online, there's a couple different ways that you could play. And the way we like to play is there's five of each land, basic land in the deck, so uh, 25 lands total in each person's deck. And you start with three cards in your hand, and each of the cards have uh, like an enter the battlefield ability. And you win if you get domain, so one of each basic land, or five of one land in play. So you can win if you have five planes, or if you have at least one planes, one island, one swamp, one mountain, and one forest. And, uh, you know, some abilities are like, draw a card, destroy a land, and get a card back from your graveyard. And so th- there, there's a lot of magic elements, but it's pretty low cost to just play with basic lands. And I thought it was really cool because I had never heard about or played the game before, but it actually teaches you a lot of basic concepts about magic without having to overcomplicate things like having creatures or planeswalkers. So I, I really appreciate you teaching me that game. I thought it was very insightful, and I wish I learned that, I don't know, 20 years ago when I started playing magic, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I taught it to a bunch of my coworkers who expressed to me that what they want to play magic, and now all they want to do is play the basic land game with me. It's cool. I was especially struck by not the game itself, but how you actually took the time to teach me the game and walk through it. And we were actually playing it between rounds of actual tournament magic. And you had wanted to play it more than I did. And I was getting nervous because I was just trying to mentally be ready for the next round of whatever (laughs) match of magic that didn't even matter. But I I thought it was really cool that you you reached out and and tried to do that and help me. Yeah, yeah. I think... A lot of magic tournaments should be more about the people than the magic. Kind of like how this podcast is more about the people than the magic, right? Maybe we can just start off by asking you about something that recently happened in social media or on your Facebook wall. There was this thing that's been going around for people who may not have seen it. People just post the same thing and and it's kind of a viral thing. So I think it was, if you're reading this, even if we barely talk... Tell me your favorite memory of me. You should do this too. So I saw that recently you posted that. And what was interesting is not that you posted that, but you actually had a lot of solid responses from people that you knew who actually posted good memories of some interaction with you. I wanted to start off by asking you, what were some of the particular highlights from your friends who posted their favorite memories of you? Yeah, so... Some of them, I I, I would kind of guess what they would say, and then they would say something else. So, for instance, one of my best friends, uh, Abe Stein, he he was the first to comment, and he pretty much really enjoyed when I used to stream, and we used to play, uh, like, Jackbox games, which are, like, multiplayer games where the computer screen kind of serves as the... The, the way a lot of people are able to uh, see like what's going on in the game and you play with your phone at home so you're playing like remotely and normally people play in front of a TV but we would just play um, on like through my screen share on the on the stream and he said that that was like one of his best memories of just like hanging out uh, which was kind of interesting because like we just have like so many other memories and I don't even think about like streaming as being like something that would be that important. Um, and a, a lot of people put down times where they first interact with me or they first met me or things about my personality or smile or attitude or something like that. But the ones that really stuck out to me were these times that I, I don't remember at all, really. 
uh, or or I remember pieces of it. So just kind of cherry picking th- through them. Uh, what one of them was alluding to. There's there's this person that's a part of a larger friend group that um, I, I would talk to a lot of the main players of the friend group, but one of the people didn't go to as many tournaments, was a little more quiet, and I don't even know if I really interacted with him, but we end up getting paired for the last round of a Grand Prix. He wasn't even sure if I remembered him, but uh, I, I did when I saw the pairings, and when I went to go walk to the table at the Grand Prix, he, he he was sitting in the chair that I, I would be passing to, uh, like I, I wasn't on the aisle across from him. I was like like where I would be sitting down across from him. I was on the the same side. He went to go take out his deck, and I just said, "Stop! I'm your opponent. Please don't take out your deck. I don't want to see any cards." <laughs> and 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 then I go around the table, sit on the correct side. I'm like, "Hey, Jonathan," and then we like introduce. We play like a really awesome match. Uh, I, I I do end up losing, but uh, he he just said that this like left a really big impression on him. Just like how you can kind of just like make a big impact on someone by just making sure that the game is fair. And uh, he was also, you know, happy that I like recognized him. Similarly, there was, there was one person that I met at a Grand Prix and uh, this was when they came up with the scry rule after a mulligan. And pretty much what happens is we're both like XO in this Grand Prix and he's on the play like in his head, his plan was to play like an overgrown tomb tapped and then pass the turn. But he played a lot more standard than he played modern. So, and they just implemented the scryer rule, which had like temples. So he was used to just scrying on turn one and then passing. So he like scryed on turn one and passed without playing his overgrown tomb tapped. And I, I don't really remember this that well, but he, he said I pretty much like refused to let him pass the turn without playing a land. A lot of people might have just like, you know, oh yeah, sure, I'll just like take my turn now or something, but I, I must have insisted or something that he play land. And then there was one time where this was at Pro Tour Dominaria, which was actually a very important event for me. When I'm playing this match, uh, I had to pretty much 7-1, seven, seven including this match, to stay on the train. I was not qualified for the next Pro Tour and pretty high stakes, but despite the stakes, I, I, I played against this guy in Dominari Limited and his deck was definitely better than mine. And uh, and he pretty much got mana flooded and won the games I won. And I've admitted to him, like, after the match, I was like, hey, your deck's, like, pretty sweet. I'm, I'm really sorry about the mana flood. Like, just kind of, like, offering my condolences. And uh, he, he said to me through this status that he was very happy to hear at the end of the day that I ended up being able to stay on the train going 7-1 that day. And he said uh, the fact that this is a positive memory and not a bad beat story about how he got mana screwed and, you know, got mana screwed out of the Pro Tour speaks volumes about how uh, good of an impression I made on him. And then uh, the, the last Magic-related story was... In Theros block, sealed, I was pretty decent at just identifying how I would need to win matches. And one of my seal pools had zero combat tricks, despite being, I think it was green-white. And uh, But I would play a lot of the heroic creatures that when you target them, they would get some sort of boost. 
And the way I wanted to try to win uh, my matches was by aggressively bluff attacking every single player that I respected, because I knew that they wouldn't block if you know I just did it with enough confidence. And uh, I had two glimpses of the Sun Gods in my deck, which was X and a white instant tap X creatures and scry one. So on the very last turn, where hopefully I snuck in enough damage in my green-white deck by bluff attacking enough, I would attack my team, and then before blockers, I could tap their creatures and trigger trigger my heroic by uh, targeting my guys, or I guess I could end of turn it as well. And then I just ended up crushing the competition and top eighting when most of my opponents had like much better decks. And a player that I looked up to for a very long time, this whole tournament just like very much stood out to him he, he he tries to think about it all the time like how how could this happen how did your opponents not block more like how could they not see just like after the game that you went through like x amount of cards in your deck and you didn't have any like tricks i'm just like hey at the end of the day if anyone called i would have lost like <laughs> i would have just been my creature and then just got on with my life but that pool was not good enough to top eight but I took the only route that would allow it to top eight, and it was kind of cool that it did. And the fact that this moment just sticks out so much to this guy that, like, there's so much to be said about Magic as a player playing the cards instead of the cards just playing themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back to something that you said a while back, which is that people's memories of you are often not significant in your own mind, right? So it, it is kind of cool to hear about how these things that didn't even register in your memory at all being really meaningful for somebody else. That's a really cool thing in general. Yeah, like th this didn't happen through the status, but there was one time after high school, long after I graduated and I was just visiting. So I was a senior at, uh, in high school and this guy was a freshman. And when I visited my high school after I was in college and this guy was still in high school, he's just like, I still remember the first time we met. I'm like, great, I, I don't. <laughs> And he said, well, we were in gym class together, but um, it, it was like raining outside. So we're just like playing a card game indoors and we're playing a uh, BS. So, you know, the, the game where you try and like lie about how many of what card you're putting down and you're trying to get rid of all your cards. And we agreed that as long as someone puts a card on top of someone else's cards on the stack, then like you can no longer BS it. And pretty much, I'm just playing like very lazy and very badly the whole game. And eventually, the bell goes off for uh, we had like a five minute warning bell before uh, the period would actually be over for gym class. So that bell goes off, and it's my turn. So I just slam down all like my whole hand of like 40 cards on top of the pile and just get up and scream, Hadoken! <laughs> do, do like you know the street fighter like ryu pose sure and uh and everyone's like why did you do that i'm like i don't know just keep on going keep on going and like the next guy puts a card on top of it i'm like great i won and they're like how did you win i'm like i, I put down my 40 cards when i had dokened <laughs> and and then uh like this just stuck out in that kid's mind as just like something so awesome and i was just like yeah uh, i i do believe that's something that i would do and i do not remember it so i thought he was going to say something about how you taught him math or calculus and helped him get into a college with an application or something but <laughs> but that is cool as well yeah <laughs> so the couple of stories he told me there's two that actually stand out to me is for lack of a better term i'll call it sportsmanship 
because you've always struck me as someone who really cares about winning and losing the right way. Do you have any explanation for yourself in terms of how you developed that part of your personality? Because I can definitely see myself maybe being paired before the match and seeing my opponent has exposed his cards, his or her cards, and actually not tell them because I thought that's going to give me some kind of edge and they did that because they were sloppy, so it's really not on me. I'm not trying to call that specific incident. I'm just wondering how you develop your sense of sportsmanship or quote-unquote justice when you play Magic. Is that something from before you played Magic or is that something you developed as you were playing the game? Yeah, it's a very good question. My evolution with Magic starts from when I started playing FNM. And I was this kid that was kind of hanging out with high schoolers when I was in like elementary or middle school. And I was relatively smart and I was a little bit cocky and I would just care about winning and I would make fun of my opponents and do these like little punky kid things. And just like did not really regard people's emotions as much because from, from, from their point of view, I'm just like this punk kid and like what's really like they would almost be amused that, you know, I was a little bit shorter when I was younger and uh, probably had a little bit higher of voice. And I used to have hair down to my shoulders. People used to confuse me for being a girl just like based on like looks. But yeah, I, I, I was not particularly someone that I liked uh, at, at this point of time when I was younger. And then I, I also kind of like would focus on, I would also trade a lot to make sure that I had the current decks for standard at the time. And I would rip off people with no remorse. I would always try to make sure I'm getting a, a deal that's in my favor. And at, at some point, and it was actually probably when I was, so around 16 was when I had my first big finish relatively speaking, where I lost the finals of a Star City 5K with fairies. And at that point, I was featured on the Magic Show. A lot of people reached out to me, and a lot of people gave me pretty big praise for this type of finish. And at that point, I kind of realized that all this trading and ripping people off monetarily did not sit well with me. And I, I, I much more enjoyed making money through being good at the game than trading. And that was kind of the first point in which I realized, at least from a magic point of view, that I should probably, just by being me and being a relatively nice or good person, and let that be my magic career instead of focusing on the monetary value and changing the focus from me to we. And so, so, so from, from then on out, I just focused on trying to improve myself in the game and also just make sure that my opponent's also having a good time. Well, when you were trading and you, you described it as ripping people off, what was going through your mind when you were doing that? Was it just youth? Was it just indiscretion or was it some belief about something? When I was younger, it was much more like, yeah, I only have like $200 to my name and I want to play standard and standard costs this much amount of money. So if I like can change my $5 card into like 
a pair of $10 cards because this person doesn't know the value of their stuff and they're like consenting, like it's fine. And I also justified as like a youth point of view, like, yeah, I'm like a 10 year old kid and this like 20 year old is willing to trade me. Like he knows what he signed up for. Like, like it's not my fault. He didn't research it. So I'd be almost like opportunistically taking advantage of people that were either being nice or people that did not value their things correctly. I quickly determined that that was not why I wanted to play Magic, and that's not a world that perpetuates people wanting to interact with me. Like, if anyone ever discovered that they lost tons of money to me in trading, like, I wouldn't want to be friends with me. You were thinking about how you wanted to be treated, and maybe the way you behave was not the way that you wanted to behave. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. It, it, it was kind of aligned with like just I guess puberty and changes in general like that that period of time where I feel like a lot of kids when they're younger are kind of like a little more self-centered or think they're immortal or like the center of the world almost and during puberty just became a time where I realized that a lot of my actions led me to feel a little bit more lonely or like that I didn't have people that I could trust and that was because I wasn't building trust with people through my actions. And then that kind of carried over to just how I felt like I want to treat people in general. I felt like throughout my childhood, there were various portions of time where both in Magic and outside of Magic, I might not have been the most considerate to people. And that's not the world I want to live in. I want to live in the world where a lot of people are considered for me and I'm considerate for a lot of people. So when I play Match of Magic from pretty much then on out, I value way higher in the last, say, five years than I did in the first couple of years of the transition. But I, I do not want to leave the table until I know that my opponent is okay. Like, win or lose. I don't care if my opponent top-decked me, but then still feels terrible about, like, a judge call or something like that. I will be there to console my opponent because... We, we are a community. If, if there's no one else on the other side of the table, we can't play Magic. But that's so fascinating to me because I know a lot of Magic players, myself included, have played the game for a long time and we develop different views about the game. I still really want to get into the, the why because it's one thing to have a decent Star City Games finish and or feeling that you need to treat people better when you interact with them in, in some way, maybe not even magic related, but it's quite another to actually be like, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you have an enjoyable game of magic, which is honestly very consistent, not just my interaction with you, but everyone's interactions with you. So I feel that it is very genuine, but I also really want to understand where that's coming from. I feel like someone could have the same life experiences that you did, but not come to that conclusion. So I'm really trying to understand that part. I'm trying to understand that too. Can, can you repeat what you said, but like slightly differently? For sure. So there's lots of people that realize that they have to be better with their opponents or better with their relationships with magic players, but you seem to go the extra mile. If you look back, are there specific things in your life that caused you to develop that view or to form that set of behaviors that you now have? In general, I don't try to just objectively do nice things. I kind of try to do the things that I think are right for a given person or community. So 
I, I feel like people perceive me as the kind of person that has never told off a person in my life. But I, I, I have told off people and I have said things that I felt like needed to be said to people or I have like daggered people to motivate them to get them like to the extra step before or something like that. But in, in, in magic, it feels like we at points have this fantastic community that will gather together and do amazing things. However, there's a bunch of other times where it, it feels a little bit more toxic or self-centered or silly at times. And I, I realize that by being a more positive person in the community, it helps facilitate the game going in the right direction. So I guess what you could say is, it started off as me trying to be what I think I should be so much that I ended up just becoming that. I might have just like lost the reason why I do it and I just kind of do it. Like it might not even be fully justified why I care so much about my opponent. But at the end of the day, when a tournament's over, when a match is over, I know I could take my losses. I know even if I lose every round of a tournament, I'm going to go home knowing that I hung out with my friends, that I had a great time. But that's not true for everyone. Some people go, go through a really tough work week and then they go to this magic tournament that they've also been practicing for and they've gotten very little sleep. And then they lose to me in their like winning in for day two of a tournament that meant a lot more to them than it did to me. And I can understand that person feeling frustrated. And I want to do everything I can to make sure that that person is willing to do it the next week. It's tough. Magic puts you in the spot where there's a decent amount of variance. And if you can't really take the losses, then it's going to be very difficult for you. And the wins also feel very short-lived. Like, there's this one time where I did very well at a Pro Tour, and the next weekend I did not do so well at the Grand Prix. And throughout the whole rest of that like work week, I could just think about all the mistakes I made at the Grand Prix. Like the the win was sh so short lived, and there are some people that aren't even fortunate enough to have that win at the higher level. Yet they're still willing to come out to these events with with a dream, and anything that I could do to assist those people with that dream from an emotional level, I want to be able to offer. I I, I don't think I don't think it's that hard to care for your opponents and. Since it's, you know, since I feel it's not that hard to care for your opponents, I should do my best to care for my opponents because not, not everyone's going to ask for help. Not, not everyone's willing to be vulnerable and not everyone is. Your opponents are not all going to just come out and say, hey, Jonathan, I'm having a really bad day here and I really came to this tournament for fun and I really want to have a good time. No, no one actually says that out loud but i think it's good that you're you're trying to give them a good experience in the end right and like you said there's really very little cost to do so because all you have to do is not be a dick yeah exactly i i, I do go a little more extreme than i know a lot of people are willing to uh to the point that i won't even if there's someone that i don't like for whatever reason and i'm still sitting across from the table from them I'm still going to shake their hand after the match. I'm still going to make sure that they're relatively fine before I leave. I just think it's incredible because in that same GP I mentioned, GP Richmond, 
I've seen you lose a couple of matches, and I think the litmus test is when I look at you from afar, you look basically the same whether you won or lost that round of magic. And it's almost impossible to tell because you are still, even if you lost the round, you're still talking to your opponents about things or even though you might have lost a round, you're actually trying to talk to them and joke about something and they really enjoy it. There's that kind of realization, like I can actually talk to this guy after the match, even if I won the match. I just think that's really cool because I, I just don't see it very often. So at the end of the day, most people are not playing magic for a living. Most people are doing this in their spare time. They're doing it for fun. If we're not willing to as people that are highly competitive or pros or even people that are doing this full time, if we don't have the people that are playing this as a hobby enjoying themselves, then our game is not going to be able to succeed in the long run. However, that's not the motivation as to why I do it. One thing I think is really cool is playing games with kids. When you play games with kids, all they want to do is have fun. And, like, sometimes they want to win, but even if they lose, they're like, great, let's play again. Like, I remember going to a Grand Prix. I ran into this father and his uh, his daughter and son that were both fairly young. And I taught them the basic land game. And I pretty much won every single game. But they would just alternate, like, okay, great, now it's my turn. Now it's my turn. And all they wanted to do was play because they just enjoyed playing games so much. And I feel like at some point when we grow up, we're, we're told that that's childish or foolish. Uh, but I think that's pure, pure happiness. And I think the way I present myself at the table and the way I treat my opponents is still with that happiness in mind. That we are still just humans. We kind of just lock away the ability to feel happy after playing a game in general, win or lose. I think we often forget that. Or another way to say it is, we often behave as if someone put a gun to our head and forced us to play in this magic tournament, when that's far from the case, right? Yeah. You know, you have people complaining, myself included, about how they didn't have a good round or I got unlucky. But, I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be playing this game if there wasn't luck in it. I mean, we'd all be playing chess or some other game instead. Yeah. Yeah, like, what's really cool is that I can play against, I don't know, John Finkel or Kai and be 40-60 to win the match. And it's just like, whoa, I could be 40-60 to win against, like, the Michael Jordan of Magic or LeBron or I don't really stay up to date on that one. But that's that's really cool to have the honor of being able to play with some of the game's greats and have a realistic shot at winning. Like, if I play Bobby Fischer in chess, I'm literally never going to win. <laughs> like, there's no luck. And I want to switch gears slightly. I first heard about this school of magic that you and your friends belong to. Initially, I heard the name and it sounded so ridiculous that I thought it was some kind of elaborate in-joke. Yeah. And then I realized that this was actually a real thing. So tell me about that school that you're, you're, you named yourself after and what, what that's about and who's in it. Yeah, so great question. <laughs> <laughs> We, we call ourselves the Sakenic School of Crushing, trademarked by Evan Buckholtz, member of the team. In college, I was constantly surrounded by people that played magic, and it was, it, it was a lot easier to work on ideas and just be very immersed. But when I graduated and 
and started working, I would really just play Magic Online. And I lived at home. I wouldn't really visit my friends as often. And I kind of had problems communicating with them just because I wouldn't make the time after work. And it was probably my fault in the end. Two books I started reading on the train ride to and from work was the Patrick Chapin Next Level Magic and Next Level Deck Building. And in Next Level Magic, he talked about forming a team of people and he would talk about how he would center it around him and another person that kind of complement each other as being the core of the group. Then he would identify the weaknesses or the other aspects he was trying to fill and scout out people and then that would be his testing group. My idea was to try that but different. Instead, I want to find three pairs of people and form a group of six such that people would still have have the ability to pair off or they feel very comfortable with another person in the group. So we did this for like a year or so and we had some pretty diff- decent finishes. There is a four color control deck that I dub Travis Control named after one of the people in the group. Uh, That was like a Jeskai deck to splash lingering souls that I became more well known for because I kind of put up a decent finish with it at an open. But that was kind of the first brainchild of us just working together. And when, when I started the group, I kind of made it clear that the the ceiling is that we do amazing things, go on to like multiple pro tours and crush it as like the next, I don't know, LSV, Paul Chion, Channel Fireball or something like that. But really the average case or the floor is we just interact with each other more and we become six pretty good friends. After a year or two, two of the people went off to focus on more non-magic things and the floor of the situation sort of happened where we were just friends that would talk whenever we got the opportunity to. Then I I randomly won a Moto PTQ, which qualified me for my first Crow Tour in seven years. And I made a Facebook group that I dubbed Proto Honolulu to Electric Boogaloo because, uh, you know, whenever something's two, it has to be Electric Boogaloo. And my first Pro Tour was also in Honolulu. So it was just funny that my second Pro Tour was going to be in Honolulu. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. And I invited to this group myself and three others from the original group that I founded. And then we brought in two other people. And Originally, we just used this group for like testing, coordinating, talking. And after the Pro Tour, we just kept on using the group. And then we started working together on different things. And before I knew it, we were just all talking to each other and planning events like all the time. Like people would pair off, sometimes trios would form, but uh, we just became very close friends. And uh, yeah, and then eventually, like, Evan was like, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all just students of the Sakenic School of Crushing. And I was just like, oh. And and Evan just kept on using the phrase Sakenic School of Crushing, and we just, we just stuck with it. From my point of view, we're all really just equals. Uh, like, we're all just members of this group. And uh, from, like, a school point of view, it's not so much of a school of learning. It's probably closer to, like, Xavier's school for, uh, I forget what he calls it, like, gifted students. Oh, in the X-Men, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like Xavier's school in the X-Men. 
Unfortunately, I've been asked this multiple times. We we do not accept applications because it's not really like that kind of school, and, and no one really graduates from it. We're we're just kind of like all trying to help each other improve through what's it called, Nextman, the the danger room, and uh, just through uh, helping each other like understand and learn, like just being a really tight knit group. So that's me. Next is AJ, uh, AJ Carrigan, who was on a Humans of Magic podcast. Storm expert, general small child on Magic Online. Uh, I'll, I'll refer to AJ in a bunch of different ways, usually calling him AJ, but uh, whenever I want to be... Whenever I want to be more formal or just alluding to something that I feel like he has expertise in, I always call him, like, the general because of his Magic Online name. That's kind of ironic because I guess it's a it's a pun, but it's also because he has a small stature, which is, I guess, the reason why he calls himself General Small Child. Yeah, exactly. He, he, he said he made it and then realized it, it can have either meaning and just leads it up to the interpreter to choose. But for me, he's the general of the small children. The way we kind of became friends was sort of interesting, and he touched on with, with you. We actually knew each other for way longer than, than we've been close friends for. Uh, we went to the same LGS growing up. In all honesty, we didn't mesh that well growing up. So around when Dragons of Tarkir came out, we realized that we both liked Taylor Swift, and we started traveling to magic tournaments together more. And at some point, we we're just just him and me and a card together, and we started talking about more personal things. I felt like I just he was just me from like five years ago. Just everything he was going through was very much parallel things I went through. We would talk about a lot of personal things, some of which I felt like I could heavily r- relate to, and. Uh, I, I would also talk about things that I was going through and and just the willingness to be vulnerable with each other allowed us to get very close and we spent pretty much a whole summer where he was judging a lot of tournaments and I was playing in a lot of tournaments and we just really became close after that. Like Within maybe three or four trips, I already started considering him one of my closest friends. He's probably the fastest person in the group at digesting information and growing very quickly. I've always felt like if he could just devote a period of time to just playing Magic, he would just be going to these Pro Tours with me. But, you know, he, he, he has a job now, and he, uh, he was in school before, so, you know, I, I understand his priorities. He, he's also pretty pretty good at understanding the way I think. For instance, when a lot of people watch me play Magic, after a match, they'll, they'll say something to the extent of, hey, did you consider this? Or why did you make this play? Or something like that. When AJ has a situation like that, he usually says, oh, I'm assuming you thought this. For instance, there's this one time where my opponent had a Tarmogoyf and I had a lightning bolt and dig through time in my hand and it just didn't occur to me that I could kill the Tarmogoyf by lightning bolting it and then using Delve to uh, to to shrink it to a 2-3, such that it would be before the dig through time would resolve, but the 3 damage was already on it, so instant one would be in the graveyard. And other people would 
say things in a more accusatory way or, you know, ways that might potentially make me feel bad. But AJ, right after the match, said, did you forget that you could use Delve to kill Tarmogoyf? And I was just like, yep. And then that was it. There's there's just nothing else that needs to be said. <laughs> Everyone's willing to put up with a lot of my junk, but uh, he's he's willing to point out how silly some of the things I do is. There's a pretty good story where we went to a sandwich shop where you would get a sandwich, fries, and with the fries came with a specific sauce. And I really wanted a certain burger and a different sauce. So everyone ordered. I ordered last. And I just said, hey, can I get this burger with this sauce? And they're like, no, if you want that sauce, it'll be 25 cents extra. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Uh, I'll just get the normal burger with the sauce that it comes with, the one that I, like, the sauce that I didn't really want. So AJ just, like, slams his hand on the table and just says, get this kid the sauce, put the 25 cents on my tab. <laughs> Since then, I've been trying to be a little bit less silly with incidents like that. AJ's also just, like, incredibly funny, great to talk to. He's just very spontaneous. Give me an example of that. Of him pointing out my nonsense or being very spontaneous? Being very spontaneous. So there's a story of one time where we're team drafting and AJ was just like very behind, but then was in a situation where they both had a decent amount of creatures and he really, really needed his opponent to think that he had a certain spell. So Abe and I know that we could like Stefan or whatever, but we just like trust AJ to do his thing. So he pretty much just shoves all of his creatures into the red zone, pulls them all back, and then is, like, laying them out, and he's just like, sorry, this is just how I think. And then, like, you know, does some quick math, and he's like, yes, and then just throws them all the red zone, and then just, like, crosses his arms and, like, stares at his opponent. <laughs> the opponent just very explicitly explained to us afterwards that he was just, like, so bewildered that these, like, series of incidences, like, happened that he thought that AJ just had to have the trick that AJ wanted him to play around. AJ's very good at once he identifies what the victory condition looks like, he knows the best way to execute it. So, for instance, he knew the victory condition was getting his opponent to block, and then he just knew how to put on this whole, like, ensemble. It sounds like he shares some similarities with you in terms of his wish to be a positive influence in the game, or, or a positive force in the game. Yeah, AJ has definitely grown a lot and changed over the years. He, he does care a lot about his opponents and how they're like how they're perceiving the match and he's a great guy what about some of the other guys on the team so abe stein recent star city games regular writer now awesome yeah yeah it is really awesome long time coming abe is from the maryland area whereas most other people are from the new jersey area and you're from the new jersey area too Yep, AJ and I grew up in central Jersey. The way I first met Abe was actually um, I was playing a sealed tournament with uh, his last name is Stein. Mine's mechanics is like relatively close. My older sister's boyfriend at the time was uh, also had a last name that was by ours. And we just realized uh, very quickly that we knew references that we would make that would play very well off of each other and my sister's boyfriend. So we just kept on doing it literally the whole build period. And like, we didn't even know each other. We've never seen each other before. Uh, we also like traded with each other then. We both felt like we ripped off each other. So that was very appropriate. Um, 
That's good. You canceled each other out, right? Yeah. And I actually still have the cards that you traded me. Uh, so, so that's pretty funny. And um, honestly, I don't exactly remember when we became pretty close. I think I just became pretty good friends with his general group. And then I just started talking to him more. My favorite thing about Abe is he can compare anything that's going on in general, but, you know, with, like, any problems I'm going through, things that happen, and he just, like, makes the best magic analogy every time. So, like, any scenario where there's nothing to lose, he he would relate to, like, oh, well, sometimes you just attack with all your creatures and you just see what they do. Maybe they just put themselves dead on board. (laughs) How can you just say that? You don't even know what card's in their hand. Maybe they do end up blocking. He's, like, a really good storyteller. He can just, like, retell his matches, like, almost verbatim. Like, whereas, like, mine are very, like, more flow-oriented. Like, I remember how decisions felt or how decisions, like, kind of transpired. And I kind of, like, fill it in with things that make sense. He's also very good at recommending things that people would like. Abe has pretty much never recommended a song or anime, even though I'm behind on animes he's recommended me. He just very much understands people's preferences very well. And he's very good at recommending things to them. This like trio of like Abe, AJ, and me has started to become uh, like a little bit like well-known as like a, like a trio. We, we team together for a lot of events. The three of us kind of just try to do like a lot of things together. Abe, AJ, and I went to dinner with three of Abe's friends, and it was a slightly fancy restaurant, and we get there, and we sit down, and one of the first things AJ does is he just picks up his empty glass and drinks it, like like there's nothing in it. And it's like, Jonathan, the water in Ohio is a lot different than New Jersey. I'm just like, really? Like, in what way? And he's like, I don't know. It's just lighter, more more airy. And I'm like, oh, I got to try it too. And then we're literally just like drinking empty glasses of water. The highlight of like the whole night is um, at the very end, the only dessert left is this dessert that Abe liked the most. He has maybe like two spoonfuls left of the dessert. So first he's just like, hey, Jonathan, do you want some? And I was just like, no. You know, I, I knew that he enjoyed a lot and I didn't really want any more of it if it was going to be at the cost of his enjoyment of the dessert that he liked. Okay, well, I'm done. So AJ, you can have the rest. So AJ, like, scoops up this, this like, whole cake-like thing on his spoon. He pretty much just, like, took the spoon and was, like, moving it towards his mouth. And uh, he, like, legit had his tongue out. His tongue is just out very far, about to make contact with the spoon. And I just like, wait, 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 wait. Both Abe and AJ look at me. I'm like, I would like half of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other three people were just like, tongue and out and everything? And you just cut him off there? How can you do that? I'm like, well, I didn't want to deny Abe, like, part of the dessert that I know he likes. But if it's just AJ eating it, I'll take half of it. And then AJ just gives me a face, puts it down, cuts it in half, and then we both eat it. Well, I think that says something good about AJ that he's willing to put it down. If it was me, I would have just be like, whatever, goes in my mouth, you know? That's very considerate of him. Yeah, the the nicest thing about this group of six, and I'll get into the other three later, is that, like, you take any two of us, we're pretty good friends, and in in the school of crushing, we all just care about each other a lot. 
I really do just care so much about these guys. Like, I would do so much for any of them. I went to a pro tour with one of them, and I consciously changed what deck I was going to play and what groups I had available to me. I had him choose which group he wanted to test with for that pro tour, whatever made him the most comfortable for this pro tour. That way he could succeed, not so that way I could succeed. Even though we're both going to a pro tour, that means something to both of us. But really, I just wanted anything for him to play another pro tour. There's just like so much like selflessness, and we care just so much about how each other feels, and it's just so awesome. Like I feel like I could just take on the world with these people. I want to do everything with these people. Like I, I want to go on trips. I wish I could be roommates with them. Like they're just so awesome. How do you think this attitude towards each other developed? I think it's really just vulnerability and trust, really just caring about each other. I guess you could almost view it as like how you perceive that like AJ and me like approach our opponents. Like everyone in the school like cares a lot about just people in general. Like we're all like a lot of people just consider us nice people. And when we're all selfless with each other, it kind of like builds this unit of trust and caring. There, there's one time we like came back from a magic tournament and the trains weren't running a certain way because I lived in North Jersey at that point and AJ was going to school in Drexel such that we're coming from the South. He literally like passed by his school, then drove me home two hours, then had to drive two hours back to his school. And it's just like so nice for him to do that. Sometimes I have like really rough days in work or in magic or in life. I just remember that there's these five people that just like mean the world to me. It's really just awesome. This is beyond a magic team. This is a way of life, if I can put it that way. Yeah, it's like every magic tournament. Like if no if no one else in the school is going to a magic tournament, then center for that person to go to a magic tournament just like dives down a lot. If one of us wants to go, everyone else is just like looking through their schedule to see if they can go too. <laughs> Because like just any like I said, any pair of us is just like a really good like like you're gonna have a great time. So one thing we used to do a lot um, is when we would go to magic tournaments in between rounds would be just like my favorite times because we would play tons of board games. Uh, we would play like One Night Ultimate Werewolf, Love Letter. We'd play Liars Dice, Skulls, all these different games with each other, and and we we would invite other people to join too. It would just be a good time. So then what I started doing, because I was one of the first people to get their own uh, apartments, was uh, I would host something called Camp Sakenic, where I would invite over these people. I kind of viewed magic tournaments as, yeah, it is true that we're going to the magic tournament because there's like a Grand Prix and we can qualify for the Pro Tour. But then we also just get to hang out with each other. Camp Sakenic is the exact opposite. We're getting together to hang out but there will also be some magic on the side. And usually we line it up with Moto PTQs, that way we can help each other out, or Moxes, or something like that, like some sort of magic online tournament. But we focus on just hanging out. Sometimes the Camps Mechanics are just more fun than the Grand Prix as a result. It feels like there's a sense of not only friendship, but also just play. And I mean that in the best way possible. Because you were talking about how we lose the sense of wonder and playing for the sake of having fun. I really do feel like you guys are 
trying to actively foster that in the group. I laugh so hard with these guys and I feel like I feel like I can truly be myself. I don't have to worry about how I'm being perceived and I just get to be very like natural and how I want to express myself and do things. And it just like everyone's doing that. So it's just fostering a very healthy environment of just being able to be yourself and that being what everyone loves about you. It's really awesome. And who are the other members of the school? Next up is Travis Perley. He's the creator of Travis Control, which was like kind of a joke in the first set of six, because what happened was that Matt Brown liked playing uh, Lingering Souls in any deck he could. And he uh, he put Lingering Souls like in Jeskai, and then I-, I think he had to worry about work more or something like that. And then Travis kind of just took it and ran with it. And... Uh, so kind of as a stab to Matt and also as like a boost to Travis, I call it Travis control, but he calls it four color. Uh, when Abe plays it, he calls it Sakenic control because he like wants a dagger Travis for it. Travis is extremely good at logical thinking. He went to Princeton. He's an extremely smart guy. He's currently working at Google. He's extremely athletic. And uh, whereas the rest of us, could probably do a better job in terms of exercise. He, like, loves soccer. Travis is really interesting. Uh, He's very fueled by passion. So sometimes he's very passionate about coding. He currently has this project called GKMTG. He's developing this website so that way people can do things better in Magic. And what he eventually wants to do is run a tournament series he wants to like GKMTG to have its own thing and he has his own ideas for how it works for instance like double elimination and he's writing automations that like text you your next round and tell you what table to go and you use like the phone app to report your results and he he has very big ideas for what he wants to do with magic so Travis's website is called gkmtg.pro and he's just looking to grow this but this is like a project he's very passionate about. We're all very supportive of him. And you should go check out the site in general. That's awesome. I definitely will. Yeah. The way I met Travis is actually pretty funny. So uh, it's like an old school PTQ. We're playing a winning in for top eight and it's extended. I was playing fairies and he was playing elf ball. Uh, so he was just trying to assemble a bunch of elves and kill me. And I was just playing some fairies that people, I guess, are familiar with we both remember the story slightly differently so i'll just tell you how i remember it and how i tell it so pretty much we end up in this board state where i have five lands in play and he has a bunch of elves either one or one or zero cards in his hand and he draws his card for his turn and then just very quickly take out like i lift up my pen i start counting his board and i just say oh my god if you have another lord i'm dead and then he's like, oh, really? And then plays like Imperious Perfect and then attacks with this team. And then I play Consume the Meek, which is destroy all creatures with convert may cost three or less. So I got, I got his Imperious Perfect. Turns out the Imperious Perfect also was not lethal. Like it didn't change the clock. Right. Um, so so it's some pretty good mind game action. Yeah. So then maybe a year or two later, uh, there's like a PTQ that I attended mostly just to watch. And uh, he, he walks up to me and he's just like, hey, uh, do you remember me? And I was just like, nope. And he's just like, oh, we played in PTQ. 
I was flying elves, you were playing fairies. I'm like, oh, you're the guy that got to consume the meek? And he's just like, yeah. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, man, like, what's up? And he ends up, like, losing the finals of that PTQ with, like, a pretty innovative deck. It was a green-red beatdown deck with green sun zenith. It was similar to a deck that Jackie Lee topped a Grand Prix with. Except he was playing Champion of Lampold, which I just like didn't see in any, any other decks. So his deck had more things that involved plus one, plus one counters. So I ended up just like convincing him, uh, either during or after the tournament, that he should try Volt Charge in his deck. That's uh, the two in a red, deal three damage, uh, instant with proliferate. That way he can like add a counter to all of his things that are giving counters. So I don't see this guy again for another couple months. And it turns out that we actually have like uh, overlapping like uh, friends. So I see him with all these guys that I didn't even know that he knew. And he's just like, hey, I tried Volt Charge in that deck. And it was terrible. I'm like, oh my god, you believed me? I got you twice! Like once with Consume the Meek and once with Volt Charge. And uh, at that point, I don't even know why he wants to be friends with me. But... Uh, <laughs> It was a test. If, if you pass that test, you can enter the school. If you can put up with me, you can enter the school. I, I think a large reason why Travis and I ever proceed as being, from him being some random guy that I'm trolling to him actively being one of my best friends that I enjoy every interaction with, it was his fault. Uh, he, he, he's really the one that uh, made the move that really kind of changed how I viewed him as a friend, which is at this point, we've known each other for maybe a year, just interacting at magic tournaments. We have similar friend groups at a star city in Edison. He just mid conversation, almost uh, I was just catching up with him. We, we both majored in uh, computer science. So we, we had some overlap of interest besides magic, but at, at star city Edison, he kind of just, asked me to go to his graduation from Princeton. And he's like, hey, like, there's going to be these cool speakers there, and you get to see Princeton campus. Would you like to come to my graduation? From, from my point of view, it was like, okay, this guy that I don't really know that well uh, just, like, asked me to his graduation. So me being me, I kind of responded with, yes, but I would like to know something. He was like, okay, what do you want to know? And I said... How many people rejected this so far? Because I was just skeptical that I would be the first person he would ask. Like, from my point of view, he was actually a lot closer with other people in this friend group. And he answers with, zero. You're the first person and only person I'm going to ask. I was like, okay, sure. So then I ended up going to Travis's graduation. It was really nice. Uh, Princeton has a nice campus. And it was a fairly nice day. So he showed me around the dorm he lived in. Um, we went to one of his favorite favorite lunch spots. And we walked around Princeton for maybe four or five hours. And we just had tons of heart-to-heart -heart moments. Just We both talked about all the relationships we've been in the past. We talked about how various, I don't know, we talked about various emotional things, uh, confidence-related things. Just we, we really opened up to each other. And maybe, maybe that's kind of a theme with a lot of people in the school, at least their connection with me. Like, I think I mentioned previously how that's how AJ and I became good friends, despite us knowing each other for a long time and not being that good friends. It was really like 
we just started driving together more and we just opened up to each other and realized that we can relate a lot to what the, the other person's saying and we can help each other out. And that's kind of what happened with Travis too. Like through like if you're going to spend 5 hours with someone <laughs> you're bound to just like start to open up about stuff as long as both of you guys are reasonable people and receptive and wanting to learn more about the other person. Just by virtue of the fact that you can have a really good one-on-one conversation with someone for a number of hours almost always ensures that you and that person will end up staying friends or staying in contact. I actually feel that way even with people that I do the podcast with because you know how it is. Like Sometimes you can know someone for a decade but never really know them because you never really have a channel to talk about those kind of things. But your friendship with someone really accelerates when you just are able to cut through all the BS and just talk heart to heart. I think about the times I've spent with Travis in in Bilbao or the time that I spent with Abe in Japan for the Pro Tour. Each of these one-on-one conversations. Or with Evan, every Wednesday I would meet with Evan where it would just be both of us like catching up heart-to-heart. Sometimes we're just doing random things. Like the most recent time I had one with him, I reminded him for the umpteenth time that I think the Static Shock theme songs, the Sonic X theme song, and I forgot what else, are like the perfect theme songs. And like, I'm just like playing them over and over again. and We're just kind of like enjoying it. Tell me a little bit about Evan now. Tell me about him, how you guys met and how the friendship developed. So Evan Buckholtz, he's, he's from Pennsylvania, whereas Abe is from Maryland and the rest of us are Jersey based. Evan I actually met through Travis. They're like really tight. They're very complimentary. Like they really understand each other. So it sounds like Travis and Evan knew each other super well. And then Evan was brought into the school as Travis was brought in. Yeah, pretty much. I kind of wanted to build a foundation of a bunch of pairs. So it was like they were a pair. Clay and I were a pair. Clay's the sixth member that I haven't talked about yet. When we formed a Facebook group, then AJ and Abe came along. So that's kind of like the evolution of the school. So uh, like Tra- Travis and Evan are a part of kind of, I guess you could call it like the, the, the crash course school of crushing or whatever, just like the, the, the baby form of it. But yeah, so I pretty much just met Evan through Travis. It was at an extended or modern, I don't even remember what the formats were called back then, but it was just at a local PTQ. I don't think I ever told him, like, my first impressions of him, but Evan has this laugh, and I really hope that you or anyone that's, like, interacted with him and stuff just, like, get to hear his laugh. It's very unique, very contagious, and it just makes you feel awesome when he's laughing. Can you do an impression of it? No. (laughs) So how would you describe it? It's a hearty laugh, or...? Like, it feels like the air's kind of going, like, into the back of his throat, like, very quickly, and it's just, like... A very, like, loud, and it's just great. And the two people I know in Magic that have the best laughs are Evan Buckholtz and Ralph Batesh. And apparently, uh, when they went to Spain together for a pro tour, and Abe was a part of that uh, testing team, too, there are just times where... I forgot what Abe called it. He called it, like, the, the, the laughing train or something like that. Like, if Evan started laughing and... 
And Ralph also laughs very easily and also has, like, a very unique laugh. And they would just, like, start building off of each other. It's just, just like, resonating. Just, together, yeah. Yeah, it's just this loud, like, obnoxious laugh. But you can't help but laugh, too, because their laughs are just so funny. But, yeah, so, like, Evan's laugh and just, like, his overall, like... He's so interesting. He's... Each of us kind of, like, excel in different things. Like, Travis is very logical and AJ is very good at coming to conclusions and very quick, like logical reasoning. And Abe's very good at, uh, storytelling recollection and, uh, dissecting things. And I'm okay at a bunch of things. Evan's talents kind of lie with, he, he, he's actually like very good at talking to people and he's very, he's a very much like a people's person. He works in hospitality and I'm willing to believe that he's like very good at like how he interacts with customers. He's very good at, listening and understanding and he and he always wants to help i've expressed things to evan that i've literally never expressed to anyone else like one of those like deep like various like deep dark secrets and stuff like that like evan's the only person i've only told certain things to because he's just so inviting and so understanding and uh it's funny because when he's playing magic he can look really serious at times but Warm's not even necessarily the right word. I, I think inviting. Okay, so very approachable, perhaps. Yeah, he's very approachable. It feels like he's just never really, like, judging you. Like, he's really just trying to understand you. And I, I think that's, like, I hope I can come off of the, as that way to people. And that, that's something I can learn a lot from. Like, the fact that I feel like I can tell him things I've never told anyone else, like, really speaks volumes to how he holds himself and who he is as a person and it's something I really admire about him. So Evan's the only person in our group that, uh, has what I call like a real, like meaningful accomplishment in that Evan lost the finals of GPL Drazi in, in Detroit. And then he went to Spain for his first pro tour with Abe for his first pro tour. And afterwards they're both trying to chase silver. Unfortunately, neither of them were able to get to their goal. And then he realized he could take off a week of work, as did I, to test with Card Hoarder for the week leading up to Pro Tour Amonkhet. So that's a, a Pro Tour Nashville. And we, we ended up having a really good time. We were able to understand how Card Hoarder operates while we were also able to supply some of our Sakenic School of Crushing like ideologies and stuff. And it, it was a really good experience overall. Evan... I obviously can't, like, speak for him, but, like, I know a large part why he wanted to go to to Nashville was because he wanted more experience being a part of Pro Tour testing teams to just understand process and see how he can apply that to his things going forward. But another part was to also just, like, experience the Pro Tour with me. He, uh, I, I end up being in the spot where... If I 9-7, so if I get one extra pro point then signing up for the pro tour, uh, I get silver. And I've never had a pro status before, and it was just like a very uh, stressful and, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting time. I end up in the spot where I just have to win one of my last three matches in Constructed to get silver, to go 9-7. So then I, I play a match, and I lose. I play a match, and I lose. It's like... It's down to the wire now. Yeah, it's down to the wire, and I, I forgot like how many times I interacted with Evan during this time period, but I'm definitely just like walking around, like 
listening to my iPod, just like trying to chill. What was your mindset like going into that third match? Man, the, the first thing I did was I ran around everywhere asking people for gum because I, people make fun of this all the time, uh, but I strongly feel like gum is a, not in, in an illegal way, but I believe that gum is a performance enhancing tool. I don't know the science behind it, but it's either some sort of like oral fixation or how like the sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system works. I'll, I'll just explain the one that I believe to be the case, but I don't know if it's backed by science, but pretty much when you're like in a stress situation, your body is operating a certain way that is very like fight or flight oriented and you're acting more on like instinct or subconscious, which isn't as good for magic. Uh, meanwhile, when you're like at rest and everything's fine, you're able to do more cognitive thinking and your body is like calmer overall. Like your heartbeat is a little bit like slower than it would be otherwise. When you're chewing, your brain is like, wait, I'm eating? I can't be in danger. And then it triggers the the, the nervous system response that would then calm down your body. I, I feel like gum could be a good way to calm down your nerves. I end up finding Brennan DeCandio that gives me two pieces of gum the two most important pieces of gum of my life. And uh, I end up playing my match, and I'm, like, chewing one of the pieces of gum. I win game one, and I lose game two, and I'm like, oh, the reason why Brendan gave me two, he, he asked why I needed gum in the first place, and I told him this story that I told you. And he's like, originally he was going to give me one, he's like, here, take a second one, just in case you really need it. And then it's like game three, and I just spit out the old gum, I'm like, okay, I really need it here. <laughs> I pop in the backup gum, and uh, I end up winning. And it's weird because I, I feel like I'm a person that actually, despite being very uh, animated in my talking or uh, a lot of people perceive me as a very like smiley or like very uh, outgoing like person, I actually feel like I don't feel a lot of emotions that often. I don't often feel the feeling of like jumping up and down like joy or I, I don't like feel like, uh, I, I don't know. When when this match finished and I end up winning and my opponent's like, hey, congrats on silver. And then like I signed the slip. I don't like, I thought that when I like got silver or like any kind of like accomplishment that meant something to me that I would like go super saiyan or something or just like feel like beyond cloud nine as people would say and stuff. And it just like didn't matter. It just felt like another match of magic. Like it was, it was all the same. Like, I was like, yeah, I've done this before. I've, I've won a match before. Like, this just didn't, like, have any magnitude that I thought I would care about. So then, after I won, I'm just, like, de-sleeving my cards, and I'm kind of just, like, sitting in my chair. And I'm, like, a little bit towards the middle of the layout. I just, like, look up, and I see Evan. And he, he's he's, like, peering out from the crowd. And he kind of just, like cocks his head a little and then like gives me like a thumb up thumbs up in a questioning way to see like whether I won and he's like it's like one of those like wavering thumbs up that says like hey like did we get there type of thing and just look at him and I know that my face was just very uh sullen like when I'm when I like play magic and or after a match or when I'm like by myself I'm usually just very like stoic looking and I, I just look up at him with that same face and just slowly raise my hand with my thumb up. 
And I'll, like, ne never forget, like, the look on Evan's face when he saw that I, like, won my match for silver. He literally, like, jumps up in the air, claps, like, pushes the people in front of him aside, doesn't care that you're not supposed to enter the area, and just runs up to me, hugs me, and he's just like, why do you gotta, like, make people, like, so afraid that you're not gonna get silver? You wait until the last <laughs> match to win. Like, why you gotta do that to us? I'm so happy for you. And he's just, like, like hugging me, and we're just, like, like he's just, like, shouting all these things at me. And, I, and at that point, I felt something. Right. I was just like, I just, I did this thing that, in a, it doesn't matter to me, but like, look at this response that one of my best friends has. Like, I'm so happy that like, he's so happy for me and now I'm happy. Like, yeah, it's like the saying goes, you're doing it for the team, really. Yeah, exactly. That, that moment just means so much to me. And I'm just like, so glad that he chose, like, I don't care what percentage it was, the fact that I was going to that, like, the fact, versus him going to there to be able to test for another Pro Tour, just the fact that he was there, and he had that response, and we shared this moment together, means so much to me. Yeah, that was worth it. Yeah. So the Pro Tour that Evan and Abe went to together was Shadows Over Innistrad, uh, and they came back with all these stories, they had a great time, and something I said to myself was, I never want there to be an opportunity where one of my best friends is going to a pro tour and I'm not also there with them. Uh, so since then, uh, Abe qualified, uh, Abe went to pro tour hour of devastation and AJ went to pro tour Exelon and I was there with both of them both times. So, so I've, I've held true to, to what I told myself, but it's like, I just want to experience my life with these people. I also just love how like, so many different people like perceive our group as a whole like just it, it's just like really awesome but i guess i should start talking about clay uh the sixth member yeah so clay tell me his full name and how you guys met and how he became a member of the school so clay Jareffi, he's like one of my best friends from college actually so when when we started the first school of crushing with matt and will it's clay and i that was like pretty much the pair and the way this formed was we both went to Rutgers in New Brunswick for college and we're the same year. It was my sophomore year that I first noticed him. And the way he would take his game actions was just something that very much appealed to me. He had a very good presence or aura about him, like very competitive aura, which is funny because that's like kind of different than how I would describe him now that he's like one of my best friends because he's also just like very kind and like understanding and stuff. Uh, but when I first met him, yeah, I was just like, man, I think this guy can just be great at magic. Like, I don't know, watching him play, he seems to be pretty decent, and he takes his time, and I really like his demeanor. He's pretty much the first person I would say that I've ever really tried to train. What happened was that he would come over to my place, and we kind of had like an L couch situation, and we would just sit in the L couch in a way such that where the two couches meet, like, we would kind of be almost, like, back-to-back, -back, except we're against, like, cushions. I was very used to playing multiple cues at the same time on Magic Online, just by the nature of being a meta grinder. Instead, I would just play one match, and then I would also, like, be indirectly kind of, like, playing his match, because I could just see his screen by turning right a little. 
almost every turn, I would just be like, hey, what are you trying to accomplish here? What are you thinking? Like, I, I would just ask very, like, thought-provoking questions. We do this for a couple of months of me kind of, like, duo-queuing both of our matches, but him, like, he learned very quickly. He's, he's a very, like, smart person. I can't necessarily, like, quantify it in the same way that I can with, like, AJ and Travis, but he's definitely just, like, very smart in almost, like, a game-like way. Like, he's just, like, kind of smart at, like, maneuvering games. At his first Star City, I think it was. Maybe it was the second. I don't really remember. But he actually top-aided, um, which was, like, great. He kind of went from, like, FNM to topping a Star City, which at the time, like, felt like a really huge accomplishment. I, I felt like a lot of my magic philosophies were very, like, trial and error, and I kind of just learned by, like, failing so many times. And he was the first person that really, like, internalized and understood my philosophies uh, as I, like, presented them. Like, it got to the point where, like, new sets would come out and stuff, and he's like, oh, you probably like these types of cards. I'm like, yes, like, that's right. Whereas, like, some people think I'm, like, really into mono red because I like playing Hellrider a lot, or I really like fairies, so I have to like these blue-based tempo decks, or he played a lot of Sphinx's Revelation, so I must love control decks. And it's like, no, I actually like doing these specific macro things of magic and like he like clay just kind of like understood that and i would say like clay's kind of like maybe the first person that i felt like ever really understood me i end up going to a diner with uh clay me and like some people from the ruckers magic club it's the first time the waitress comes back and says do you need more time and i answer yes and clay just even louder says no we're ready to order and everyone else is like, well, Jonathan said he needs more time. Like, shouldn't we wait for him? And Clay just, like, Clay has this great, like, laugh while talking type of thing. Like, like kind of like a chuckle while talking. And he's like, oh, no, you don't know Jonathan. This is what he's doing. And then he proceeds to say, well, you see, upon entering the diner or maybe even, like, reading the menu, like, very quickly, Jonathan already knows what he wants to get. And then... He's, like, kind of, like, cost-evaluating all this other stuff. But if we, like, put him under the gun, he will just order the thing that he actually wants. And by, like, waiting this amount of time, he's really just, like, trying to psych himself out and seeing if he can, like, cut a few dollars off or, like, get something that's, like, slightly more efficient. But it, it usually just doesn't happen. He's just going to take all the time you give him, and he's just going to get to, like, the same answer. So we should just order. And then everyone looks very perplexed, turns to me, and I just look up from my menu, I'm like, he's right. And then I just go back down to the menu, I'm trying to, like, figure it out. He just knows you so well, just from that. And he's willing to verbalize that, which is really key, right? Everyone in, like, the school of crushing is good at this now. But he was the first person that ever taught me things about myself. <laughs> like, I, like, I would never be able to put that into words. But only because he did, I can do it now. Do you think that Clay is just super observant in general, or it's that you and him have some kind of chemistry which lets him really understand you? I, I, I think it's both. I, I think he's really good at understanding people, but I like to think I'm a complicated person, and he like definitely understands me very well, but maybe everyone's also a complicated person. Yeah, I, I, I think it's both. Clay is probably the person I have the worst record against, like, lifetime. Like, he's beaten me more than anyone else at almost any game I've ever played. I, I think we're both, like, fairly, like, uh, similar in terms of, like, intelligence levels. But he just gets me so much better than how I, like, get him. He's constantly, like, he would constantly say things like, Jonathan would never do that. And he just knows. And it's, it's fantastic. Sounds like he brings out the best in you. And likewise. 
Yeah, yeah. He he means a lot to me. He so unfortunately, uh, after we graduated college, he ended up being in the hospital for a little while, and he's like currently in the spot where I pretty much haven't seen him for I forget if it's a year or two at this point, but. Uh, he is actively playing Magic. I, I, I do get these reminders that he still exists when he's, like, one of the top, like, draft trophy leaders. And, uh, yeah, we we have our Facebook group. And uh, the, the joke we kind of have is that he's in his own hyperbolic, his own version of the hyperbolic time chamber. Where he's just, when he comes back, when he's healthy enough, that he's just going to, like, dominate the, the game. But really, it... Uh, kind of sucks. I feel like I wasn't able to share a lot of moments with him that I really wish I could have. And he doesn't know this. I'm not really a person that's very good at giving gifts. I've been trying to be better about it. And I kind of just like give gifts to people as it's like convenient. But uh, uh, Will from the original like School of Crushing and Clay are two people in particular that I like to go out of my way to get presents for. Uh, even before uh, Clay had to stay home more. And uh, since since he um, hasn't been around, I've bought like I bought a present for him for every birthday and Christmas he's missed. And uh, right now I just have like a stack of it's like fairly high now actually of just like stuff that I've bought for him at various events that I've gone to that I wish he could have come to or like events like, Christmas celebrations I wish he could have been at. And uh, all of us talk about how the first tournament that Clay says he's coming back for, like, we're literally just going to drop everything and, like, go to that event, make it a really big thing. And, uh, like, Abe and I fantasize about, like, me giving him all the presents. What we'll do is just, like, okay, you went around for all these big events. Here's what we're going to do for you. And then, like, it's, like, Christmas 2016 – Merry Christmas, Clay! Here's your present! And then, like, oh, it's, like, March 2017? Happy birthday, Clay! Here's your present! And we'll just, like, celebrate all, <laughs> all the things. Play back the entire timeline and all in one go. I, I don't really know what to say. I, like, really miss him. And, uh, yeah, he's just, like, literally one of my best friends from college. And it just, like, just kind of sucks. I don't really want to go, like, too much into detail. Like, uh... Sure. Let's just say that you're looking forward to meeting up with him again, and yeah, and he's not like deathly ill. I, I don't want to come off as like he's, <laughs> he's like dying. Okay, I don't know why I laughed there. It's probably inappropriate, but no, that's fine. You just need to meet up with him at some point. Yeah, you know how in like the Beatles, they kind of joke that like Paul is dead. Yes, it might have been a different person. We don't know, but in like the Abbey Road like album cover, he's like walking up step or whatever. So like. People used to ask us, like, hey, where's Clay, by the way? And we just, like, reply with, like, Clay's dead. <laughs> that is, that's morbid, but it, but it's kind of, uh, kind of fits. Yeah, or, or, like, Clay's dying and stuff like that. But, like, at the end of the day, like, yes, I, I, I don't want him to be dead. I very much care about this individual. And, like, we, we kind of joke about it in a way to, like, forget that it's been so long that we've seen him. One thing that's, like, very compatible, in a similar way that, like, Travis and Evan are compatible in terms of, like, uh, their sense of humor and how things line up. Uh, Clay finds a lot of things I say, like, funny, and he loves, like, listening to my stories. And um, I've, I, I would talk to Clay so often, or in so many different, like, group settings where he's also there, but other parties haven't been, that I end up telling the same story in his presence multiple times. And just, like, halfway through the story, 
he usually ends up laughing and just saying like, oh yeah, I remember how this one ends. It's great. Or he'll be like, oh man, I remember the lead up to this and I know the punchline's worth it, but I don't remember the punchline. I can't wait to hear it. Like he loves hearing my stories over and over again and I love telling stories. He, he, he's just great. I, I can't wait to like simply just like see him again. I hope everyone does get a chance to see him soon. Yeah, we'll celebrate all the Christmases and birthdays. It's truly been a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you and get inside the mind of Jonathan. And I feel like I have a better understanding of you now, which is really the whole point. And I'm so grateful to you for taking the time. I, I feel the same way the other way around. I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to uh, bring me onto this podcast and uh, talk to me for however many hours we've talked, uh, both on and uh, offline. Huge thanks to AJ for bringing me up in the first podcast he had with you. It was very nice of him, and he didn't have to do it. It was really awesome just because the first time we talked, we were talking about life and magic, and we didn't record any of it. And actually, I remember telling you at the end of our first talk on Skype that, oh, man, I wish I recorded this. Because afterwards, I was just telling a couple of my closer friends Man, Jonathan mm -hmm. Sukanik is so awesome. Like he talked to me about an hour about how to play Grixis Delver, and I can't under I can't really describe his philosophy because it's so <laughs> unique. But it's it's so it's just that you have this generosity, and you're you're just full of good stories. And uh, I I'm really glad that we got a chance to to talk, and then to meet, and then now to talk again. Yeah. I'm really thankful for you doing this podcast and kind of giving back the, to, to the community that's been, you know, so nice as to unite various people around the world. Like, you're in China right now and I'm in New Jersey. Like, if it wasn't for Magic, we pretty much have no business ever meeting each other. Totally. I, I'm super grateful for the game and for the community overall. Yeah, definitely. All right, Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. Take care, be well, and I'll talk to you next time. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep crushing with the school. This concludes our episode. Please subscribe to Humans and Magic on iTunes or on SoundCloud to ensure that you get new episodes as they are released. To learn more about Humans and Magic, please visit humansandmagic.com. And to support Humans and Magic, please go to patreon.com slash jamessu. That's J-A-M-E-S-H-S-U. We'll see you next time.